Well, good morning and an early Merry Christmas to everyone. I was able to meet several guests, several friends. It's good to have our family in as well and some friends of our family. And so if you're our guest this morning, we give you a warm welcome and it's great to have you with us. I'm going to have you turn to Luke chapter 2, but I don't expect you to keep up with all the references this morning, um, but that is where we will begin. And if you want to go back and gather all the references, I will read them out loud. And tomorrow morning, we actually post a sermon link in our Week at a Glance newsletter. For me, it's hard to believe that this is the last Sunday before Christmas. It just it feels like it should still be October for some reason. And all of a sudden, here we are celebrating on this Sunday the birth of our Lord. And if you think about the Christmas story, what the Christmas story is, it's, it's one amazing miracle. It's almost like the Matryoshka doll that my little granddaughter always wants to play with at our house now. It's that little doll where you, you take the head off and inside are a bunch of little other dolls. And the Christmas story is like that. It's one amazing miracle, but inside are all these different miracles and signs and wonders and personalities. Two of the primary personalities are Mary and Jesus. She makes it into several of traditional hymns and newer hymns. But the focus highlights a particular child. And that's why we've gathered this morning. It provides a reminder what this time of year does. It provides a reminder that the son of God, the eternal son, always the son of God, took on something that he hadn't been before, and that is human flesh. And he did so for a reason. And what we'll call these are purpose statements. The Bible is actually going to tell you why Christ came or why he was born, or why he took on humanity, a humanity that he didn't have before. Actually, the incarnation, and what we mean by that word is Christ took on flesh. The incarnation is the greatest rescue mission ever known to mankind. Every year, though, it seems like this time of year, we, in, in some ways, put Jesus back into a manger, we line his little wooden piece up next to all the other nativity scene pieces, along with the wise men and the shepherds. Uh, our set even has a star that looks like a palm tree because there's no other way to sort of suspend the star over the manger. And we, we sort of return him to be an infant every year. And yet we have gathered this morning to worship a living king who is neither in the manger nor on the cross, and he's not in the tomb either. So we gather to worship a living God. You know what the Bible does say about Jesus' birth is fascinating. And even though I would personally like to know more about the seven-year-old Jesus or the 16-year-old Jesus, wouldn't that be fascinating? Or the 21-year-old Jesus? Uh, what we have is sufficient. We actually get some details of his birth when he's eight days old, when he's between 40 days and two years, a small snapshot of when he's 12, but then everything culminates when. The Scripture says in Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. 
And if you read any account of the gospel, by the way, only two include his birth. But all four are fixated. They're riveted on one week in this man's life, this child's life. And the bulk of gospel material in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all take your attention not on his birth, but on another event in the Christ child's life. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Here's, here's part of what we have recorded about his birth. Joseph also went, I'm just going to read a piece of this, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be registered, verse 5, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We've had a lot of time in the last year and a half to consider how secular regulations and inconvenient demands can alter our life. Do you know that's exactly what God used to get the Christ child to a small hamlet outside of Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5 verse 2 that that is where the Christ child should be born? An unreasonable secular regulation. I would guess that if Jesus were born in your city, you probably wouldn't have noticed. I mean, with the excess of travel and the increased economy that the census produced, and Joseph and Mary were probably not the only ones rejected at the inn that night. Inns were full. People were traveling. They had traveled 90 miles south from Nazareth along the flatlands of the Jordan River, west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem, to this small insignificant town. As a matter of fact, Micah says, though you are least among the clans of Judah, even though David had been born there. And now, guess who else is going to be born there? The Christ child. In that culture, you probably wouldn't even known about the pregnancy of a woman. Much like in Africa, you don't announce it in the rural areas. It's immodest. But when the child is born, there's a great celebration. We probably would have overlooked the seeming underwhelming in that moment as well. Other than a few shepherds, a class that was actually looked down upon. Other than a few shepherds, there wasn't much of a fuss over him to which we would object. Right. Well, weren't there three wise men and a little drummer boy? Right. Well, not exactly. We're going to get to that part in the story at eight days. So we're going to we're going to bypass the birth account. We're getting to eight days at eight days. Look at Luke two, verse twenty one It records that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. And that is in accordance with Jewish law. If you're the king of heaven, why would you follow human laws? If this baby truly is the king of kings and Lord of lords, why submit to human, humans that you created, why would you submit to their laws? Galatians 4.4 is one of the purpose statements. It says this, Christ was born under the law to redeem. That's a purpose statement. To redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem brings us into the culture of a slave market. It means to buy back or purchase back. Well, why do we need to be bought back? What is it that we are then enslaved to? What are we imprisoned to? 
Well, Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. Matter of fact, John 8.34 and Romans 6, much of the chapter says that we are slaves to sin. We are unable to free ourselves from that bondage. Romans 6.23 actually makes it worse. It says for the wages, the payment of sin is what? It's death. We're not just imprisoned. We are on death row facing complete death. We need a rescuer, someone who can enter into our prison and release us from death row. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is exactly why the Scripture uses the terms redeem and Savior. But look back at Luke 2.21. The emphasis is not on the law of circumcision. As a matter of fact, Luke, the medical doctor, actually sort of mentions it in passing. It says this, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, yes, he's under the law, but why is the name Jesus emphasized? Well, the purpose of his birth is revealed in his name. Matthew 121 says this. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's why. For that's the purpose for he will save his people from their sins. Do you know that's why at this time of year, regardless of what this past year looked like, the hurts and the pains and the disappointments, we can have hope, joy, peace, and love because the Savior came to save us from our sin. Matthew says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name he doesn't use the term Jesus here. He uses a title. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew gives you the interpretation, which means God with us. He made his home among us for a purpose. But there's still no drummer boy. Have you noticed that? Somewhere between 40 days and two years, Jesus was presented at the temple not in Bethlehem, but they traveled to Jerusalem and Joseph and Mary, again under the law, presented Jesus. After the 40 days required for Mary's purification, they head to the temple. Matter of fact, there is an older man who apparently has received a promise that he will not die until he sees the Messiah, until he sees the Christ. He's at his house. A lot of people call him a priest, but there's no evidence in the scripture that he is a priest. He is prompted. He leaves his home and he goes to the temple. And guess who he intersects? Joseph and Mary and their baby. When Simeon takes the baby in his arms, he says this in Luke 2, verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. And then he says, it is good. I can now depart in peace. The Magi appeared in Jerusalem sometime after Jesus' presentation at the temple, which happened after the 40 days. Jesus would have been at least six weeks old. We don't know his exact age. In Matthew 2, verse 1, it says this, after Jesus was born, and in, our, and in the translation it says this, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi, actually the root of that, magician, 
We're also sorcerers. We don't like the term sorcerers, so we use the translation wise men. So most of you had no idea that you have Eastern sorcerers displayed in your house right now, did you? Magi were more highly educated, therefore wise men is an accurate rendering. But they were most likely not kings, and there were probably more than three, because according to Oriental custom, they traveled as twelve. So, you don't have to edit your manger scene, but if you wanted to purchase nine more magi, that would be more accurate. Of course, in our home, because we're theologically accurate, we still have three, and they're all bunched together with everyone else. Twelve wise men presented gifts, probably how they funded their trip from Jerusalem down to Egypt because they were poor. Magi studied many things, including astronomy, and that's why the star would have stood out to them. They mapped the skies. They knew the stars. And they knew that this star was unique. Matter of fact, Matthew 2.9 says this, the star that they had seen when it rose... Something unfamiliar about this star. And you know what Matthew is doing? Matthew is trying to allow you to identify with pagan, foreign people who see something different and they travel to find this king. And all of a sudden on our hearts, the people we are most like are foreign pagans traveling towards a light that we didn't know before. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 2, 9-11, to 11, it says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And going into the... It doesn't say manger, it says the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary And they fell down and worshipped Him. It's amazing. This picture of gifts, symbolic gifts from wise men from the East who find the King of Kings in a house. It's interesting that the story fills in between His being 30 and 33 years old and it fills in on purpose. Because there you get an extensive record of Jesus' travel and ministry and teaching and signs and wonders. And yes, it all culminates to his death. All four Gospels point to that. A matter of fact, John's purpose statement, take one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John says this, and by the way, he structures his entire account around seven signs. The first being changing water to wine. And it's more about beverages. It's about Him being able to transform your heart. Then in chapter 3, to new birth. And that new birth is available to all because in chapter 4, He goes to a woman at the well who is a Samaritan. She's not fully Jew. John says this, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. John uses seven. But these, these seven are written so that you may believe something. This is John's purpose statement. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. The rescue deliverer. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. Well, that life all culminates to His death. Which we'll see in just a minute. 
It's interesting as Simeon takes the eight day old Jesus up into his arms and he says, I have seen the salvation of the Lord. I want you to hear what he says. And we're going to look at this more in depth next week. Simeon says an eerie statement. Can you imagine you being the parents? This older man comes out of nowhere. He's holding the child and he says this. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. And many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword, Mary, will pierce your very soul. All of a sudden, out of these two characters, Mary and Jesus, there's one that's already being highlighted as a sign, as a sent one, as a deliverer. But let's consider Mary for a few moments. That Mary is unique is undeniable. And I mean unique in the sense of being one of a kind. No one else was chosen to bring forth the Christ child. Luke chapter 2 verse 7, it says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Mary believed God's word. As a matter of fact, she accepted all these difficulties, the shame, the suspicion, and the hurt. She said this in Luke 1, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. One of the beautiful details we can overlook is if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, it was a woman who looked at a tree and saw that its fruit was good to the eyes, and desirable, and she took it. Do you know in God's grace, this reversal happens also through a woman? Though a woman took the fruit and with her husband brought a curse over all humanity, it is now a woman who brings forth the Redeemer, Rescuer. Matthew sees the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 17. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And God was with us and God is with us. As a matter of fact, Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 43. She says, and why is this granted to me? Listen to the title. That the mother of my Lord, she's carrying her own child. Her own child with special significance as the forerunner. As the second Elijah. But she says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Again, between Mary and Jesus, the child is starting to be highlighted. Matter of fact, Mary says this in her hymn in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. She actually employs typical language for someone whose only hope for salvation is in God. She says this, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I want to show you two quick accounts of a time when Jesus was teaching. And I want, to, I want you to hear the reaction. On one occasion in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50, it says this. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, and I want you to kind of create this scene in your mind. Behold, his mother 
and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. You remember this? But he replied to the messenger, the man who told him, your mother and your brothers are outside. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Do you know there was a time when his family didn't even believe in him? Matter of fact, it was the responsibility of the family that if one of their members was doing something to bring shame upon the name, they had to go and intervene and stop it. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In John 7, verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him at that point. Mark uses an interesting statement in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It says, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Do you realize that's what Jesus' family said about him? At that point, the scribes accuse him of being possessed by the prince of demons. And a few verses later, it says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Which sounds like they were trying to prevent him from teaching. John 1 verse 12 says this to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. On another occasion in Luke 11 verse 27, as he was teaching, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, listen to what she says in the middle of his sermon. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Can you imagine somebody just yelling that out during your teaching? Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The woman, probably genuinely struck by the power of Jesus' words, cries out and prays to his mother. And even though Jesus didn't criticize her at the outcry, what he said is spiritual relationship is more important than physical relationship. That's why in John chapter 3, we're, we're told about a new birth. But never doubt that Jesus loved Mary, in John 19, the last request from the cross, he says this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Here's my point. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus there is no co-mediatrix that includes Mary in the plan of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes unto the Father except through Him and through Him alone. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Give me five minutes. And we're going to move through this. If you go back to Matthew, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Because whenever Matthew mentions Mary in connection with Jesus, even when he's a baby, there's this thing we call the, the order of importance. For, for example, the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 2, verse 13, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Verse 14, And he rose and took the child, who's superior, and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Matthew 2, verse 20, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
We read this verse already. I hope it stood out to you. Let me read it so it does. Matthew 2, verse 11. Not only do you have Matthew's order of importance, you have the Magi's object of worship. And going into the house, they saw the child. And guess who's there? With Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Mary is there in their presence and they bow down and they worship her child. Don't miss, though, Satan's object of hatred. Matthew 2.13, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Matthew 2.16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. Let's pull the curtain back. Who is actually inciting Herod to slaughter the innocents? In Revelation 12, verse 4, it's talking about Satan. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Satan knew very well the prophecy of Genesis 3, verse 15, where a child would come. And even though he might hurt his heel, the child would crush Satan's head. So Revelation 12:13 And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child he pursued Israel specifically who had brought forth the redeemer of the world So you might ask what is Christmas really about Well Christmas really does involve a gift but it's not an exchange of gifts it is a free gift of grace that we receive by faith alone in Christ alone. If you take all four gospel accounts, I'm going to point you to the one week without much description. Matthew takes eight of 28 chapters to focus on one week of Jesus' life. That's one third of Matthew. Mark takes six out of 16 chapters. That's one third of Mark to focus on one week of this child's life. Luke takes six of 24 chapters. A quarter of all of Luke's material focuses on one week of this child's life. John, nine of 21 chapters. That's nearly half of John focuses on one week and he, and he devotes one third of it to just one 24 hour period in that child's life. What is most important about Jesus Christ? Only two gospel writers include his birth. All four take the bulk of their material to focus on his death on the cross. That's the gift. That's the purpose of why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate this time of year. A little rural village called Bethlehem leads to a place less than 10 miles away called Calvary. The place where a mother would watch her son, her and our Savior, die for the sins of the world. An insignificant place in that little town, probably a wooden shelter for livestock, leads to another seemingly insignificant place out of the city called Golgotha, where he would die on another wooden structure across. The bread of life was placed in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, as a sign that all who would take of him would find life. Why? Matthew 20, 121. 
You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And you need a Savior. And I need a Savior. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How? By death, by defeating death through his bodily resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Now since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, we share that in common, a humanity. Jesus also shared in this, humanity, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Do you believe this? Do you receive this? John combines those terms of receiving and believing as the same thing. Do you receive the gift of a Savior who died for your sins. John chapter 3, the last two verses I'll read. For God so loved the world that He gave. That He gave His only Son that whoever, by the way, that includes you. That whoever includes you. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. I don't know what thoughts you have about God or what untruths cloud His character, but He did not send Jesus to condemn you. He sent Jesus to save you. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not by any of your works, lest you would boast. You simply receive it. And receiving is believing that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. And that He accomplished the work that He finished on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. Let's pray.